I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. How are you doing, podcats? Adam Buxton here. Good to be back with you again after the winter break. And I am reporting to you from a farm track in Norfolk, UK, on a beautiful afternoon. Easter weekend 2022. The sun is shining. The fields are looking lush green. My best dog friend Rosie is up ahead bouncing. She's just been chasing after a deer. But maybe I can get her to come and say hi. Rosie, come here. Come on. Oh, she's loping. Come on, Jennifer Lopez. Hey, how are you doing? Hello. Oh, man, you're out of breath. Been having a good old chase of those deer, right? Yeah, chased a deer, yeah. Let it get away. Yes, I saw that. Very nice of you. Now, Rosie, earlier on, my brother, Uncle Dave, who is staying with us this weekend, said that he tried to go for a walk with you, and you'd been walking for about five minutes, you seemed happy, and then you suddenly just stopped and refused to go any further, and he had to return to the house. What's that all about? He's talking about computers and operating systems, and I just found it a bit annoying. So I went back. Right, OK. Well, he's back at the house now, probably talking about operating systems with my wife. I can't believe you're still doing that my wife thing. Doesn't she find that a bit offensive? Why can't you just use her name like a normal person? Well, because it's a sort of a podcast catchphrase, I suppose. Anyway, I think she prefers a bit of anonymity. You know what I mean? Yeah, but you have said her name before on other episodes. So what's the big deal? Just say her name. Uncle Dave is chatting with Sam. Keep my wife, my wife's name, out your furry mouth. Oh, yes, Will Smith at the Oscars. Finger on the pulse. Have you got something funny about Ukraine? Keep my wife, my wife's name, out your furry mouth. Didn't think so. Right, I'm off to do some gambling. Bye. Yes, you do that. When I've calmed down, I will tell the podcasts a bit about episode 173, which features a rambling conversation with the writer Marion Keyes. Keyes facts! Marion was born in Limerick in Southern Ireland and grew up in Cork. She earned a law degree at University College Dublin before moving to London in the mid-1980s. This is a very brief overview of... Marion's life. By the mid-90s, Marion was facing up to her alcohol addiction and a bout of clinical depression that had led to a suicide attempt. She received treatment back in Ireland in 1995 and thereafter embarked not only on her journey of recovery, but also on her journey as a phenomenally successful and well-loved author. Double journeys. Marion had submitted a short story to a publisher before entering rehab, 
and after getting a positive response, she wrote her first novel, Watermelon, which was published that same year, 1995. Like many of the novels that followed, Watermelon focused on one of the members of the fictional Walsh family and combined a frequently funny storytelling style and great characters with unflinching takes on painful subjects. Over the years, Marion's characters have experienced challenges that include addiction, mental illness and domestic violence. In her 2012 novel, The Mystery of Mercy Close, Marion wrote about the character of Helen Walsh, struggling with depression. The book was written at a time when Marion herself, though still clean and sober, was going through another period of suicidal depression that descended out of nowhere in 2010 and lifted just as mysteriously four years later. Despite these kinds of personal challenges and some of the painful themes in Marion's books, she is, in person, like many of her characters, great company. Immediately warm, friendly and generous, and it was great to get to spend a couple of hours with her in the offices of her publisher in London back in March of this year, 2022. We talked about what it was like to be profiled by legendary arts presenter Alan Yentob. We talked about the good times that we both had working in restaurants in the West End of London towards the end of the 1980s. And, inspired by the Agony Aunt podcast Now You're Asking that Marion hosts with Irish actor and writer Tara Flynn, we talked about sex, or at least writing about sex, and love, and the meaning of life, kind of, trying not to get too Instagrammy in the process. In the weeks before I met Marion, I'd been listening to the audio version of her latest book, Again Rachel, the sequel to her 1998 bestseller, Rachel's Holiday. And just before I arrived at her publisher's offices on my Pink Brompton, I had got to a particularly emotional section about halfway through the book. So the conversation started kind of heavy, or at least heavier, and then lightened up. And I should say as well, a quick warning before we start. I don't think that what we talked about at the beginning will spoil your experience of reading Again, Rachel. But if you are worried about that kind of thing, spoilers I mean, you can skip forward about six minutes from this point and there will be, as far as I'm aware, no further possible spoilers. Back at the end for a bit more waffle, but right now with Marion Keys, here we go. Yes, I'm sort of jangly, and maybe this is a bit unprofessional to admit, but I was listening to the passage in, again, Rachel, where you're talking about um, Rachel losing her baby. So I'm kind of raw. <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, no, no. Uh, it's not something that's happened thank God. to me. Oh, thank God, yes. yeah. I was yeah. going to ask if it was something that had happened to you. I mean, that it, it isn't. No. You know, I mean, obviously a lot of my work is, you know, channeled through me, and, you know, like Rachel's an addict and I'm an addict you know like 
we have that in common. Um, but I didn't lose a baby and I don't, the storyline came to me out of nowhere and I always feel uncomfortable with telling somebody else's trauma. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I did a lot of research on it and I spoke to somebody who had lived through it and even so, I was worried about what the response would be and especially because the world has become more and more aware of appropriation of other people's stories. Yes. But mercifully, I mean, a lot of people have got in touch with me, uh, women mostly, since the book came out and uh, that had had that sort of loss. And they said that I didn't over-dramatise it, which I'm immensely grateful for. I think people, you know, just these women, felt that somebody using the worst loss of their life as a plot point or as melodrama or fake emotion, that that would have really offended them. And, I mean, I suppose so much trauma is low-key, like really horrible, mm. but it's not high drama. So, so that's a very long answer. But no, I suppose the closest loss that I have to Rachel's is that I I wanted children and didn't have them. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's a different sort of loss, I suppose, but it leaves that same, mm. I don't know, that same... Sort of yearning. Yeah, and kind of your life is sort of stalked by ghost children. Um, and I imagine possibly affected very deeply by other people's stories about their own children and maybe the those losses. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I mean, I'm at the stage now where, like, there's very little pain left. You know, there's an awful lot of acceptance and just the odd time, you know, when somebody has a new baby, the feeling comes of kind of like, it's a visceral thing. I can feel it now in my hands. You know, I always want to take it, not... Not steal it, but squeeze sure. it and have it. Not and steal someone's yeah. baby. And like, yeah, exactly. Like, no, thank God I never got that bad. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't kind of lurking outside post offices and watching watching people leaving their prams. I, I'm joking because people don't do that anymore. Um, <laughs> uh, and I have lots of nieces and nephews that yeah. I, I insert myself very aggressively in their lives and um, insist that we have a great relationship and that we spend time together. And Yeah. I'm re- I, I apologise, I sort of, immediately asked you a, a very heavy question no, about Adam, one of the heaviest aspects of your book. But it's sort of what you do so brilliantly is, you know, I tend to avoid things if I know they're going to be dealing with those kinds of subjects because I'm a bit of a coward. And I tend to feel that real life is painful enough no, without exploring, yeah. you know, fictional pain or whatever. But one of your talents is that you are able to write about these things in a way that's quite gentle while not shying away from the reality of it. But um, it doesn't make me reach for the off button kind of thing. Thank you. I mean, I agree with you. I find real life, especially at the moment, I mean, Mm -hmm. just far too sharp and pointy. And there's, you know, so much human misery available in all media. Um, and yeah, there's an awful lot of books I won't read if there are certain subjects coming. But I suppose I also feel that to tell a good story, you've got to have the darkness as well as the light. And I insist on being hopeful. And I mean, maybe that comes from my own experience that like you can go through things that 
you always thought happened to other people and that they are survivable, better than survivable, you know, that you can kind of re-emerge into, into pockets of hope or, or happiness. My favourite saying is, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Uh-huh. Um, because it does. It kind of, it, it, it shows us, oh my God, the worst can happen. And, and look how sensitised I am to pain now. Um, an awful thing is an awful thing, is what I'm trying to say. Yes. That's all it has to be. If you've survived it, hooray. That's all you have to do. Survive it. Yeah. You survived. This is a good segue. A, <laughs> you survived a encounter with Alan Yentob. I did. In the BBC Imagine documentary. How is that? Well, I mean, the whole thing is I am so honoured. Still kind of baffled. You know, I think I'm probably the first popular fiction author that they've done. And, uh, and he was very kind about my work. It was a good programme. It was, you know what, it was a lovely programme. And I didn't understand the the vision of the director initially mm-hmm. because it felt to me like it was very focused on one part of my life which is my addiction but I can see now that everything she brought everything together in a way that was that had a very kind of distinct narrative arc and was very truthful mm-hmm. and beautiful it was it was lovely it was lyrical yeah. I'm going to say lyrical lyrical, lyrical Adam okay yeah <laughs> yeah no and then like having my Having my mother and my sister oh, that was, was great. just really nice. Your mum's yeah. nice. She's fantastic, she, isn't she? Her, the way she was laughing, there was, a, there was a bit where your sister was talking about how when you were young you used to share a bed and you would collapse through the mattress and yes. your pa would have to kind of Come and hoist it you. up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the way your ma was laughing was very um, entertaining. I'd never seen anyone laughing like that. She is just an amazing woman. She's very cheeky. Mm-hmm. You know, the... There's a word bold in Ireland, which doesn't really have a translation here in the UK, but it means very naughty, Mm -hmm. very naughty and cheeky and sort of winky. And she knows exactly what she's doing. And she's very childlike, not childish, but she has a she loves funny things and she loves she's a kind of a sly sense of humour. And because she's this tiny little Catholic Irish mammy, people think that she thinks nothing but kind of pure thoughts and she's not she loves the crack she loves a laugh um she loves people being subversive Mm -hmm. and I feel so lucky that she's my mother you know there's a rebel in her that there was nowhere there was no outlet for her at the time you know Catholic she had to stop work when she got married right and she's such she's a very creative woman she's very witty good with words very interested in stories. She's just, she's charismatic, I suppose, which is not the kind of word you'd use about. Because on the other hand, she is very, in public, she's pretty careful. You know, Irish mammies are not allowed to express opinions that uh, that aren't in line with the dogma, you know, uh-huh. that aren't in line with the orthodoxy. But if she had been born in a different time, she would have sp- Sword, but she must take tremendous pleasure in seeing your career blossom. And oh, it's complicated. And it's a, though. It, I'm sure it's complicated. Yeah. But in a way, you could easily characterize it as a sort of a collaboration. Yeah, I mean, that's a beautiful thing to say. Yeah, obviously, no, you. If it wasn't for her, and 
um, just hearing you talk about her and the way she sees the world, that's very much in your writing. Yeah, I mean, I learned to be a storyteller by being her daughter and the home she created. Story was really important. It was how we entertained each other. And and it was what drew people to her mm-hmm. and to the house. And you had to be good at it. You know, you had to... I, you know, I have four siblings. We're all big characters. You know, you had to carve your space at that kitchen table by being the funniest or the most interesting or having the most outlandish event. Um, yeah, it was like a... You know, one of those writer's rooms, you know, where like you have to be really, really, really good to have your line inserted in the piece. Yeah. It was kind of like that. But when you grow up with that, like you have no idea that that's what you're doing. Um, but definitely she taught me narrative and she's a natural comedian. She she understands how to set up a punchline. Wow, that's great. And it's funny, I've, you, you're the first person that I've articulated it with like this. I mean, thank you. Oh, wow. Seriously. I heard you talking about her on Desert Island Discs a little bit as well, though. But this is different. I mean, mm. calling it a collaboration is correct. It struck me, though, watching her, I just thought, that's, she's funny. Because her, when, when your sister was telling the story on this documentary, her face was all kind of inscrutable, but she, yeah. it was like she was trying to stop herself. La- her yeah. mouth was twitching away and she yes. was chuckling internally. It was very yes. entertaining. Yeah. Are you all right for water and everything? I'm great. I have tons here. I have an entire gallon. Um, Now uh, I'm going to take a sip of water. So will I. People pleaser. What I mirror people's actions. You talk about your people pleasing tendencies. I heard you. I think, I think, I mean, I relate to a lot of the things you talk about. Do you? Oh, yeah. But I mean, you know, I was going to ask you if people often just get very emotional when they meet you. I would imagine that they've experienced so many strong feelings reading your books and had such a kind of personal experience that when they meet you, they maybe come apart and want to give you a hug and do yeah. all that sort of stuff. Well, that must be heavy. It's, it's very rarely heavy. I mean, there is hugs. Yeah, definitely. There are very few people who sort of arrive in crisis or in bits mm-hmm. you know um a lot of people say that they've got sober as a result of reading Rachel's holiday or or listening to me it's mostly happy stuff i mean what breaks my heart is people who contact me and say i can't stop drinking you know right they're in they're still in yeah. it yeah what what can i do and i mean i can only tell them what i've done which is I mean, I went to rehab, but, you know, 12 step work is, is how it is for me. And, they, and if they say, I've tried that, what else can I do? I can't offer anything else because I'm not an expert. All I can ever offer is my own experience. But mostly it's very, it's a fun thing when I, when I meet readers. Mm-hmm. You know, because I know this probably sounds incredibly trite and maybe even insincere, but I feel like my readers are my friends and I'm their friend. And I may not have met them all in person yet, but that kind of, that worldview, we share it, which is kind of, 
because I felt so alone and so kind of uniquely fucked up, am I allowed to swear? Of course. Thank you. Um, And by writing about those feelings, I've actually discovered great connection. I mean, that's been the greatest gift that being published has given me. That feeling that I am not weirdly, uniquely defective. Um, That there's an awful lot of us out there. You talked about, in the Yentob documentary, you said something about depression, which struck a chord. And you felt that your experience of depression, which was about four years worth, Mm. 2010 for about four years, yeah. And when it had subsided, you felt that you'd kind of got a peak in that period when you were depressed at how utterly alone every human being is. Yeah. And that that insight that suddenly dawned on you for no discernible reason kind of shredded you for that period. Yes. And um, and then went away again. I mean, yeah. it's still a thing that you're sort of intellectually aware of, I guess, but you're not... I'm not in the feelings. ...in it. You're not yeah. gripped by it. Yeah, I'm not feeling hours. it, that kind of feeling of utter desolation. Yeah. Complete disconnection. And, and I felt I didn't love anyone. Mm-hmm. That's a horrible feeling. And nobody loved me. I felt, you know, I didn't, I didn't feel numb because I felt very afraid. But I realised one of the things that's really important to me is that I love a lot of people. And I I get very excited when I meet new people and think, oh, I really like them. You know, that kind of sense of connection mm-hmm. is I had no idea because I used to regard myself as a very kind of cynical, you know, lip curly up kind of, oh God, I can't bear that person or that person. I mean, that's what I was like when I was drinking. And then I got sober and then I've sort of fallen in love with the world and people left, right and centre. And for that to suddenly stop left me feeling floating in endless space. And, uh, and now I'm back to where I love everyone again. Mm. Well, not everyone. <laughs> you know, but like an awful yeah. lot of people, you know, and I am funny. One of the happiest times of my life was kind of the summer of 2014 after I sort of emerged to the surface with a pop. And I remember I met loads of lovely women around then. And I've, I made loads of new friends, which was, you know, also you get to a certain point in your life and you think, I'm sorry, my friend list is full. I'm sorry, there is no waiting list for the waiting list even. You know, I'm sorry, please go away and, and you know, find other friends. But suddenly I was like, friends, come on, more of them, lots of them, come over to my house. And it was just, it was lovely to feel alive and loving again. Yeah. But then there's the practical... Like, are you good, though, at maintaining those friendships? I'm not great, to be quite honest, because, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I love them in my heart, yeah. but I am... I mean, I have often said this, you know, the happiest times of my life are late on a Saturday afternoon when I get a text saying, tonight's off. Because, <laughs> you know, because just, oh, great, 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 great. Right, I don't have to, I don't have to go and be, and be dazzling and charming and all of that. I can just lie on the couch and watch endless telly and eat like a wild animal with my hands. Um, <laughs> but I do, I suppose, I mean, people kind of complain about social media and everything, but it's, it's a great way of ma- maintaining those sort of 
I don't know, those threads of, of love. Mm-hmm. And um, funny enough, now that we're out of, are we out of it? Are we allowed to say we're out of it, the pandemic? I'm saying we're out of it. Okay. Um, yeah, let's ignore the reports of the variant from the variant. Oh, God. Anyway, yeah. they're, they're still saying it's not as bad as okay. the previous variants. Grand. So let's That'll carry do on. me. Yeah, but I've started making plans. You know, I have people coming over to my house on, uh, next Friday and that sort of a thing. You know, so in my head, I have lots of friends now. In practice, I don't see them that often. But I still feel I, I could, I was going to say ring them. No one can ring anyone these days. You can't. No, that's very offensive. Yeah, it really is. You How have to submit you? a formal application. Yes, yes, yes. yes. And arrange Which has to go time. through like, yeah, but that has to go through a committee that got, gets kicked up upstairs. <laughs> they will either approve it or not approve it. Isn't it hilarious? Unscheduled phone call is only for emergency purposes. Yes, truly it's it just is. just like... bad news. Nowadays, if you do make the unscheduled call, you've got to say very quickly, hey, I'm, I'm just calling for a chat. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't like otherwise if because it's the person just is small waiting talk, for the disaster. Exactly, it's like and yeah, who's dead. So yeah. what's what's up? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> you sort of assume, hmm. Okay, so there's no immediate emergency. Otherwise, you would have said already. Yes, but there must be something coming. There's, you're there's you're prob- looking for money, aren't you? It's you're probably for a money. favor. Yeah. That's it, isn't it? <laughs> it's like, could you help me with this incredibly annoying thing? Yes. Or I've I've set up a charity and oh, I'd God. like you to yeah, uh, donate or such and such. I need you to do your juggling. A, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing. So after you left Ireland, having done a law degree, what made you do a law degree? I don't know what it's like in the UK, but in Ireland, you get a certain number of points allocated for each of your marks in your final exam, the Leaving Cert. And I got enough points to do law. Okay. So I did law. Did you imagine yourself as a kind of crusading... No, no. I mean, <laughs> honestly, I, I couldn't imagine myself as anything. I can't insist enough how much I didn't think there was a future for me. Um, I thought I'd never get a job doing anything. And years later, somebody asked in an, you know, one of those email things, what did I want to be when I grew up? And yeah. I said, happy. And they like, no, 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 what job did you want? And I couldn't answer. There wasn't one. Mm. So I did law because... Because I got the points. Sure. I, I relate to that do 100%. You? Yeah. What that, did you do? Uh, what did I do? Well, I did what you did, which was get into catering. Catering? Yeah. Well, no, when I say catering, I worked in restaurants. Okay. But I was you, a bartender. But you fed people. Oh, you, yeah. You yeah. see, that's a very important sure job. Sure it is. Very important job. <laughs> yeah. And you were... Uh, what I guess I would now call a server in an effort to be politically correct. Oh my God, do we not say waiters anymore? I don't know. I mean, because because server is gender neutral. Grand, so, gotcha. 
Right, a server. So right, yeah. rather than saying waitress, but then you yeah. sort of think like, well, the human league sang about a waitress in a cocktail, cocktail bar. bar and they were nice, weren't they? Anyway, you were a <laughs> server. In a cocktail bar. In well, which was a the restaurant video cafe. Yes, do you know no about less. it? I remember, I'm 52. Okay, I'm 58. Okay, so, uh, yeah. but I was only a little bit behind you. So in 1986, when you were working in the video cafe, yeah. I was in my last year, I was in the sixth form. Um, and I was in London, and me and my pals were carousing and going carousing, to bars. And gorgeous. <laughs> Love that word. And then only a year later, uh, after I left school and had absolutely no clue what I was going to do and didn't have the grades to even go to university, so I had to sort of resit and try and make good on my parents' investment in my education, I got a job as a bartender to, to you know, get some money. And then spent the next five years working in bars around the West End of London, uh, including a place called the Rock Island Diner. Did you ever uh, yes, remember that? Yes, I do. To be honest, London in the 80s was just fantastic. It was pretty fun. Wasn't it yeah. great? Like genuinely, hand on heart, you talking about being a bartender for five years in the West End, the fun of it, like sincerely, mm. you know, um, the parties afterwards, the people you worked with. I mean, that was how it was for me. And in no way would I consider like bartending to be oh, a lesser job. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a tough job, but it's a it's a lovely way to live for a long time. I really loved it. And the, yeah. as you say, the amount of people that you came into contact with that you would never otherwise have mm. met. Because yeah. my, my education and my upbringing had been very straight in all sorts of yeah. ways, you know what I mean? And And pretty much everyone I went to school with was like me, looked yes, like me, had a yeah. similar background. And then suddenly I was in this environment with all these people yes. from all over the world and straight and gay and different colours. Yes. And it was like, oh, this is fun. I agree. That's exactly how it was for me. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of them were like actors or dancers. Yes. A lot of them were dancers who, you know, were waiting for a job. And they were just these amazing looking people. They were all like beautiful and and really stylish and fantastic. Yeah. And yes, I'm so happy to hear you say that. And Richard E. Grant was um, Stop it, no. around at the same sort of time. While you were at the video cafe, a few streets away, you were in Argyle Street. Yes, I, I was. And over in Covent Garden, Richard E. Grant was waiting tables. Um, Mother of God. Pre... Uh, Withnail. Pre Withnail. Well, maybe Withnail came out in 86, but but just a few years before yeah. then, he was, yeah. he was one of those people. Yeah. There were so many people like that. And as you, and really interesting, these passionate people, and you'd go out drinking and you'd talk about the meaning of life. And Definitely. It felt like, this is it. Yeah, I, that's exactly how I felt. And yeah. like you, you know, I came from a very kind of middle class, careful sort of a family, careful sort of a place. And and that my, my poor dad was so worried and just so desperate to get me on some sort of kind of respectable career path. Mm-hmm. And this was the total opposite. And like, I lived in a squat on the 21st floor of a tower block on Hackney. And you were taking your life in your hands every time you got in the lift. How did you find the squat? My friend Connor uh, worked or lived there. Um, I don't know how he found it, but I came to London and stayed with him. And like, we lived together for... Years, eventually we had to start paying rent and made avail. But it felt, 
dazzling mm. and colourful. God, it was wonderful. Yeah. What did you do at the video cafe? What was the setup there? Were you on roller skates and stuff like that? No, no, it was pre-roller skates. Thanks be to Christ. Get was, it, was that the place where they filmed people and then it would come up on the video screens? No, no. no it's um, USP was just that it had giant video screens. Playing music videos. Playing music. All the popular beat musicians, my lord. <laughs> um, yeah, who do I remember? Yeah, it's Peter Gabriel, I remember. Oh, yeah. Sledgehammer. Sledgehammer. And um, Dede, do you remember them? Yeah. That, you know, it was, it was good stuff. You know, it was proper stuff. Yeah, yeah. Tears for Fears. Yeah, I mean, great. that was so up our alley. Me and my friend Joe Cornish, you know, we, we ended up working together and doing TV yes, stuff together. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. But we were so into that. I don't know why we didn't spend more time in the video cafe because that was exactly what we loved, you know. Yeah, that we music. Just, we were going to see movies a lot, I guess. Oh, did you? Yeah, we were just seeing everything that came out. But beginning to hang out in a lot more bars. But I guess we were hanging out in people's houses more. Yeah. We'd just go back and, you know, we went to see Betty Blue. And then... Right, And that yes. was in the smoke age, right? So yeah. yes. half the cinema, cinema. Yeah. was you can't smoking see. away. yeah. And uh, it starts off with that full-on sex scene. Lord, save us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I remember everyone in the cinema just lit up a cigarette after the <laughs> scene was finished. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they were so kind of invested in yeah. it all, yes. And then, do you remember they, there was a scene where they did tequila slammers? Yeah, yeah. And we'd never seen that <gasps> before. So we went right. immediately to the offy and yes, got some tequila. and, and made and some of your own. spent the rest of the evening doing tequila slammers. God, I'd forgotten about tequila slammers. Look God be with the days, yeah. It was great. <laughs> it was. Like it was proper, proper enjoying yourself yeah. stuff. But then looking back on it, obviously for you, that was a part of your life that ended with you facing up to your alcoholism. Yeah. Um, but, like, it wasn't the tequila slammers that did it, though. No. I mean, I was always, always on course. Okay. Like, and it, if it hadn't been alcohol, it would have been something else. Um, at the time, I didn't realise, though, because I just thought I was drinking for fun, mm. you know, and, like, being reckless and young. And, and I didn't realise that I was self-medicating. For a long time, I didn't know what that phrase meant. But I was just so uncomfortable being me. And never entirely sure how to be with other people. And when I drank, all of that went away. So, I suppose because I lived like that, I was able to kind of disguise my problem drinking as party drinking or, you know, wild times drinking. And it was only when my life changed and I got a job in an office and and I started paying rent. and Right, you're no longer in that kind of hedonistic yeah, environment where... Where it's justifiable. Yeah, it was sort of powered by booze and, yes. and for some people pills. I remember some of the yeah. waitresses with micro dots of acid during Go shifts. On. Yeah, and I was like, oh my God. The odd time I used to take speed, which I, again, I thought it was so thrilling. But actually looking back, it's a horrible drug. I didn't really come by drugs that much. Right. I suppose or maybe just alcohol was always my drug of choice, whatever. But um, yeah, drugs weren't really a part of my story. No. But that's not just, not, that's not because of any virtuous reasons, just like nobody ever offered me them any, you know. I suppose we find what we find when we're an addict and well, alcohol the was mine. Drinking culture is so sort of elaborate and 
respectable. I was just going to say that, respectable, yes. You know, you sort of think, well, it can't be bad, can it? I mean, yeah. look at all the work that's gone into it. Yes. All the different flavours, the techniques for making it, all yes. the cocktails, the yes. beautiful bars, the polished surfaces. Yes. It's all good, yes. isn't it? Yes, it's like the... a bank in here. Yes, yeah, <laughs> like the mirrors and the beautiful yeah, the bottles mahogany. all lined up, the mahogany. <laughs> a place with mahogany can only be respectable. Of course. A bastion, a bastion. And look at these handsome people serving me yes. this booze and all yes. the bow ties. And, and so obliging yeah. and, yes, pleasant and yes, sir, of course, sir. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And then Tom Cruise to oh, seal sure, the look. deal. Did you ever go and see that movie? I did indeed. Yeah, we got oh. taken to see that by our bar manager. Oh, my God, saying, aspire to this, lads. Saying, we yes. need a bit more flair behind yeah. the bar. Because TGI Fridays down the road was packed out the entire time. Yeah. He was like, we need some more of that. We need to start spinning some bottles. That's Come on, guys. so funny. Please, did you really? Yeah, yeah. And This is like a motivational, like a workouting. Yeah. Yes, lads. And we tried. We came back and we started throwing bottles around. And I immediately... Um, one slipped out of my hand a, oh God. and smashed into the mirror behind, oh, smashed the mirror behind the bar. And then I would do things like, I didn't realise that when you spin the bottles, you only are supposed to have a small amount of liquid in there. You can't spin a bottle that's full. Because? Because then you'll get an arc of liquid oh, yeah. coming out from, oh, from the pourer. God. And so I'd spray all the customers in happy hour with a, an arc of kind of strawberry liqueur trying to do my yes. Tom Cruise thing. It was disastrous. This is gorgeous. <laughs> I love this. Oh, my God. They were the days. Yeah. We had no idea. And, I, you know, I, my niece is very into the 80s. And I was, for a long while I was wondering why. But now that we're talking about it, why wouldn't you be? Because it was a time of... We had no idea how lucky we were. Yes. And it, I've said this so many times before on the podcast, talking about so many of the big issues that we're trying to deal with now in the world, social issues and kind of uh, identity politics type conversations and things like that. But those seemed so irrelevant in the 80s. It yeah. really genuinely felt like those problems had been solved. It was yeah. like you go to the yeah. movies and you saw a sort of utopian post-racial yeah. world reflected back at you. And obviously they weren't, none of those yeah. things were solved. They were all shoved down and not being dealt with. But I think, I think we felt like, oh, yeah, we're nice people. We're, we're, yes. You know, we're, we're, uh, we're, 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 um, we can have fun We're now. enlightened. Yeah. Yes, we're aware we know our privilege. We didn't have that word then. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. And that we thought things were fixed. To the extent that people who were more overtly political were seen as, as being kind rather doer. That's right, militants. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And kind of, you know, buzz wreckers. Yeah, and like, calm down, son. You know, we're all yeah. trying to have a good time <laughs> here, do you mind? Have another drink. Yeah, I completely agree. And another thing was, like, I mean, I didn't have any money, but it felt like there was an awful lot of money around um, in London. Yeah. Because I don't know if, if this means anything. I don't really understand myself what it meant. But the big bang had happened in the city. Yes. So like suddenly there was like... Yuppies. Yes. Like lots of people had lots of money. And even working as a server in the video cafe, like I got tipped an awful lot. Yeah. You know, like people were flinging money around, like snuff it awake, to use my mother's expression. You know, and... It just felt 
great. I, I mean, I do remember the yuppies being... Oh, yeah, we'd laugh at them, like. Yeah, they oh, yeah, were... Oh, yeah, we contempt for them, yeah. Yes, yes, They're yes. They were ludicrous figures. Yeah, they were ridiculous. And uh, for younger listeners, yuppies, uh, it was an acronym, Young Urban oh, Professionals. And yeah. uh, and that got turned into yuppies. Yeah. They were the main ones in the 80s with the big shoulder pads. Yes, and they'd come and from the office and... Double-breasted jackets yeah. and... And they were in Wall Street. And, yes, uh, and film. had filofaxes. Yeah, filofaxes, and, and then blackberries later on, and then blackberries, crackberries. And yeah. they had, and they ate sushi. And the idea of like, uh, oh, you eat raw, raw fish? How's so wrong with you? Like you're over the it's top. Disgusting. And then, of course, finally you try sushi. It's like, oh, oh wow, my god, this is, this is fabulous. Yes, I know. Yeah, I know. It's kind of an awful moment in everyone's life, isn't it? It's like, Christ, I see, I see. Right, I'm one of them now. Um, but what changed then once you were in recovery? What were, I mean, this is a big question, but how were you able to get beyond that feeling of disconnect and of not really belonging and, and needing a prop to make you feel less raw or, or, or diffident? God, let me see. I mean, I went to rehab for six weeks and it changed an awful lot in me and how I saw myself and how I saw the world. Yeah, I mean, it was that. It was it was what I learnt from other recovering alcoholics, really. And combined with the fact that I had almost immediate good fortune with writing. Mm-hmm. And... What do you think it was that the publishers saw in the short stories you sent in initially? Because you have said that you find them embarrassing well, now when you think about it. Yeah. Even though they're, they're, there's a story that you described in the Yentob doc about an angel falling to earth and having the same sort of life that you had. Yeah. And, but it felt like, yeah, that's a good premise, you know, that n- yeah. most people wouldn't necessarily come up with. Why was it embarrassing? Oh, I mean, I, I, did, I think the premise is embarrassing. Although I suppose looking back, what I was trying to do was describe the life of a so-called post-feminist woman mm-hmm. because that's what we were described as back then. You know, that feminism, there was no need for it anymore. The war was over, The you know. Um, this is early 90s. Yeah, it yeah. is, yeah. And like I was living this life where like that very much wasn't the case. I didn't get paid very much. The glass ceiling was real. Women were judged for having sex in a way that men weren't. Date rape didn't even have a name, but it was certainly something that happened. Gender-based violence was just, it was just something, it was so prevalent, it was invisible, Mm -hmm. almost. So I think what I was doing was, at the time, popular fiction for women was all about aspirational stuff, wish-fulfillment stuff. It was about women called Samantha who would have sex on their boardroom table. Do you know, like, that they were that they were fabulous and they had really expensive shoes and that they had enormous amounts of power and... and had that film Working Girl come out of that it, point? It I had, yeah. it had, it had, yeah. And I... I didn't even know I was doing it, but by writing about a woman like me, I was giving a voice to the... to most young women working in cities where life... Was was a struggle. Mm-hmm. It was fun, but it was, in terms of like, if you wanted a career, it was much much harder for women. And then there was also this very weird thing about your attitude, one's attitude to men and relationships, and long term relationships and marriage, and that we were told, oh, sex is great, 
Have sex with whoever you want. I mean, that's that's what you must do. You want a boyfriend? Oh, God, I wouldn't admit to that. That makes you a bit tragic. You know, what? You want to get married? Oh, God, no. You know, you were told it was very shameful to want that sort of patriarchal thing. That sort of stability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you want that sort of stability, it means that you're actually, you're just a chattel. You just want your dad to hand you over to another man. Is that what you want? Uh And I could think, well, no, but I'd kind of like someone to watch telly with in, in the evening, someone to be my best friend. So it was a time of enormous confusion. And we had no language to articulate it. Um... I, you know, I see young women now and they, they're all over it. They know everything. They have all the words to describe the lies of the patriarchy. And, you know, they're so great talking about... I didn't know any words, but I was trying to kind of describe that confusion mm-hmm. and also to kind of put my hand up and say, these are the things I would like. And that voice, which was... Or that story, which was so different from the wish fulfillment boardroom table, Samantha, high heels thing. It resonated. It was timing. I was very lucky. There was luck and there was timing. And there was also, which I didn't realise, was the way I write, which is conversational. It's... It's, it's accessible. And, you know, I, I, I really caveat by this by saying what I do is not for everyone. I fully accept that. It, if it's not for anyone who's listening, it's grand. You don't have to tell me. I know. But, <laughs> but for plenty of people, they're like, oh, my God, here's this woman and she's talking to us the way I would talk to my flatmates and the way they talk to me. And I get it. Because even at the time, women's magazines were very aspirational. Mm-hmm. They were all about, you know, dress for the job you want to have, not the one you have. And You and can have it all. You can have thing. it all. Yeah. yeah. And it was not the case. And I detailed lives where you had, maybe not fuck all, but you had very little. You know, you were lowly in life. So it was timing. It was timing. And because I had no other way to write than the way I spoke, which is what I had learned from Mammy Keys. It was an incredible nexus of look and timing. And is that voice in your head and the way that you normally converse, was that what immediately came out? Or did you try sort of being more literary or like you thought writers should be or something like that before? You see, what it is, is I'm a storyteller. Yes. I'm not a writer. I'm a storyteller. It's taken me a long time to understand that. I'm telling stories. And, I mean, I've got better at the craft of writing in that, like, I probably couldn't have been much worse than when I started. But I told the story as if I was telling it to Suzanne, my flatmate, or Katrina, my sister, or... You know, so the first four chapters of what became my first book, Waterman, were basically, it could have been transcribed from a conversation with me. And that's that's kind of how I got through the first several books. Yeah. By just first person, chatty, addressing the reader directly. Although you do have a facility with words and you do have an ear for funny language, interesting language, memorable language. Thank you. Um, and I'm interested to know what were the books that you read where you were particularly struck by use of language when uh, when you were growing up or at any point in your life? There's an Irish writer called Flann O'Brien, but mm-hmm. a lot of people have read him. Do you know his No, work? I don't. Oh, my God, he's amazing. Um, what would you start with? I, I mean, The Third Policeman is the masterpiece. Um, 
at Swim Two Birds. Um, he is just gorgeous, very witty, inventive. There are no rules. I mean, how he writes, it's kind of hard to describe because he's very Irish. Yeah. And I mean, I think Irish people speak and probably write according to the rhythms of an older language because like English isn't our first language and I mean we all speak it but most of us I mean we all had to learn Irish at school so like there's a there, the sentence structures are very different to the way English is structured and I think it would seem illogical to English speakers but I mean Hiberno English is what I would call it a lot of the metaphors are different, more colourful and... It's sort of playful, isn't it? It is more yeah. playful. It's funny, I was reading somebody in the last few days talking about, you know, the the relationship between Ukrainian and Russian and that, you know, Ukrainian is very similar to Russian but it is so different in that it is much more lyrical, it's much more inventive, it's more colourful, it's more joyful. And that's how I feel Irish people are with words, with English with speaking English, writing English. And Flann O'Brien really does that. I mean, another person I really loved is the most English person you could get, which is um, P.G. Woodhouse. Oh, yeah. You see, I love adjectives. I love adverbs. I I really have that Irish thing of why use one word when 4,000 will do. You know, the more, the merrier. I just think words are beautiful. And and why not throw in three or four more if they're, <laughs> if they're, if they're entertaining and lovely? Yeah. I always notice it like when I fly back to Ireland after being somewhere else. Immediately, the men at the passport place, how they talk to me is so much more elaborate. You know, like recently I went back and it was so funny. There was nobody at the passport place and the man came here and out and says, oh God, you're here, are you? You know, and like, it, it, it's something like you'd make up because we didn't know the plane had landed and they, they were all jumping in the boxes. He goes, right, so... Where are you? Where are you back from? And you know, and I told him, and he and uh, he goes, "What were you doing over there?" I said, "Work." And he looks at my thing. He goes, "Oh, it's you, is it right?" And then I said, "Do you want to see me COVID certain?" He goes, "Ah, no, go on. You've an honest face, you know." And like, <laughs> you just wouldn't get that anywhere else. It's there's a warmth, <laughs> and uh, Irish people may not know, but they pride themselves. We pride ourselves on exchanges being meaningful and entertaining, yeah. even with like a, just a couple of sentences. You've got lots of pop culture references in your writing. And I've heard you talk about Toast of Tinseltown and things like oh. that. What do you watch of an evening? What do you gravitate towards? Are you a box set person? I'm not a... Well, 
I'm not a binger, funnily enough, even though I'm addicted to almost everything. I, w- I watch an awful lot of Scandinavian crime. Oh, do you? Yeah. yeah. I mean, still, you know, like <laughs> Swedish, Danish, Norwegian, Finnish. Um, so, yeah, I watched Host of Tinseltown. I um, love him. I watch The Apprentice. Forgive me. I mean, because it feels incredibly cruel at this stage. It's like laughing at the poor delusional children. Um, <laughs> I... Uh, what was I watching? Starstruck with Rose Matafeo. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we don't get it in Ireland, so right. I've been watching it over here. But I tell you, at the moment, I'm in a Godfather. Um, oh, what, the movies? Yes. I saw both one and two this week, and everyone says... Is that the first time? Yeah, mm. no, I'd seen one yeah. a long time ago, and I didn't remember much about it. Who's that rare thing, the, the uh, sequel that's an improvement on the original? <laughs> That's what everyone said. And then everyone said, don't watch number three. I'm going to watch it. I don't care. It's been reassessed, actually. Yes. They've recut it or something. They called it Godfather Coda. So if we don't regard it as another sequel, but as an epilogue, apparently, or a coda, then I suppose maybe it'll kind of dampen our um, expectations. I suppose I go to see a fair few films. I read an awful lot. Yeah. One of the great things about being on Twitter is that people recommend things to you. Yes. Um, yeah, that's one of the few things I yeah. miss. I'm not on social yeah. media anymore. I mean, it's like it's a sewer. Like it's the most awful, awful thing. But if you're careful and mm. never express anything even remotely controversial, you might get away without a death threat on, the, on a daily basis. But yeah, TV, books, podcasts... Fun things. Well, you are part of the podcasting universe now yourself. God, I am. Yeah, it's so funny. For a long time, I made fun and said, I'm the only person in the world who doesn't have their own podcast. And I can't even say that anymore. I'm talking about the show you do with Tara Flynn. Yeah. Which is called Now You're Asking. And you are kind of agony aunts. Is that a phrase that it's still okay to use? I I don't know. I believe it is. I haven't been been scolded yet for using it. But you know the way sometimes something lovely just happens? Mm. With almost no input from yourself. Mm. Um, the BBC came up with this proposal that Tara and I be agony ants, And it's just lovely. I was very daunted beforehand because it's a difficult position to try to be entertaining while also taking another person's problem seriously. You know, because the last thing we wanted to do was use the problem as, you know, for cheap laughs. And because both Tara and I well, I'm old. She's not as old as me. But we've lived a lot, you know, and uh, we've made so... Well, I have made so many mistakes that there's almost nothing that people can say to me that I can go, Christ, I identify, you know, which has been helpful. So, yeah, it's been lovely. Um, you're, you're, um, you remind me of <laughs> less filthy Joan and Jerrica. Have you ever heard no, Joan and Jerrica? No, no, oh, no. Oh, my God. Okay. Joan and Jerrica. Yeah, so this is uh, a comedy podcast. Vicky Pepperdine, or Pepperdine, I'm never sure exactly how to pronounce her name, I apologise, and Julia Davis. And they play these agony aunts called Joan and Jerrica. Oh my God, I'm going to listen to it this very afternoon. It's absolutely filthy. Are you okay with filthy? I'm grand with filth. Yeah, I'm at my most comfortable, I'd say, with filth. Yeah. I think it's the most filthy thing I've ever heard in my life. Okay, now I'm really intrigued. Yeah. Okay. And is it language that's the filthy bit or, or what they're talking about? No, it's, they, they, they... Is it a sex show? It's mainly about sex. The joke is, I don't want to ruin it by deconstructing okay. it too much, but I think 
the deal is that they're sort of um, women of a certain age who embrace the patriarchy to the extent that they blame all the women who write in to them for their own oh, problems. fantastic. Okay, <laughs> grand. I have it. Okay, yeah. lovely. And what they need to do to fix it. Yes, yes. yes. Hey, speaking of which, another great transition. I'm amazingly good at this. <laughs> sex. Yes. Sex, sex, sex. How do you approach writing about sex? Because, I mean, it's not like you have long, detailed passages in your books, but it's there. Mm. And obviously it's such a fundamental part of people's yeah, lives, especially in relationships, you know, yeah. that you that it's sort of weird when you don't acknowledge that. But what's your take on it and how do you approach it without feeling that you're revealing too much about yourself or that, I don't know, it's not normal or whatever, you know what I mean? That, yeah. that, I think those probably are the anxieties that most people would have yeah. talking about it or writing about it. Yeah, I mean, definitely there is that feeling that everybody will think it's me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also like writing them, sex scenes, if it's appropriate. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I write about bad sex as well. But I like writing about nice sex because I feel lots of things about it. I mean, I feel sex is very important and people often feel that they're doing it wrong or that they're not doing it enough and that it stops after a certain point, you know, after a certain age. And I don't think it stops, not for everyone. That it might stop for a long time and then it could start again. I don't think it's something... That's easy when you're under an awful lot of pressure with a huge amount of demands on your time and energy, you know, for either men or women. Yeah, I suppose at the moment I'm at that stage where I like writing about a sexual renaissance for people in long-term relationships because I believe in them. Mm. You know, I think definitely there are times when it just doesn't happen, you know, or it's quick and unsatisfying. You know, if you have demands on your time and you're exhausted and you've got young kids and you're sleep deprived and... You know, and then you have other times where, like, it's gone on for too long, the dry patch, and both people are too mortified to kind of approach each other because that means acknowledging that this distance has has grown between them. And, I mean, I just think it's a joyful, lovely thing. Mm-hmm. And... Well, it can, it can make you feel so close to a person. Yeah. And yet... If it's not right for whatever reason, it can make you feel it's so devastated. alone. Yeah, yeah. It's so alone, so alone, utterly. And I suppose I'm of the feeling that um, you need to work at things sometimes. Apart from, again, Rachel, my last two books have been about, you know, women in their 40s. The break was about a woman whose husband needs six months off from the marriage. And, and her response is before he goes like she wants to have sex with him all the time when for years previously she didn't and you know and she regrets that time when she could have had it any time with them and I I like writing about it because it's important and I didn't even realise that that's what I was doing but looking back at my last three books when you know these are not women in their 20s and 30s any longer and they're people who've been in long-term relationships. I mean, that interests me because I think it's people's reality. Mm. 
I mean, you haven't got to it yet, but there's a sex scene in this book that for actually me um, reading it, I did it here um, with Roy, the sound engineer. And like I was fucking mortified and dreading it that day coming in on the tube, <laughs> dreading it. And actually, he was such a nice man. He made it really OK. Mm-hmm. Um, this is when you were doing the audio The audio book. Yeah, yeah. Um, what was it? Because it was explicit? It's Be- explicit. It's explicit, but it's also very romantic. Yeah, but is but it the is it the actual yeah, words? Yeah, because that's sometimes the thing, isn't it? When you're trying to talk to your partner about stuff like that, it is the words that make yeah. you cringe because you that doesn't seem to be the right way of saying anything. Yeah. Sometimes, if you use slang, sometimes you can use a bit of slang that is repellent to the other yeah. person. Yeah, and and that kind of freezes everything. Yeah. Or then if you get too kind of medical, yeah, <laughs> that can also kind of make like people think, doctors, yeah. yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult. And I think the first thing we need to do is acknowledge it's difficult. And anyone who even tries to talk about it deserves a round of applause because they're being courageous. Mm-hmm. Um, and the older you get, of course, then it becomes entangled with anxiety about, about your, yeah, your body. And yeah, your body. Deteriorating. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, Again, Rachel, a big part of it is about the idea of whether it's ever possible to have a good relationship with someone that was once very important to you. Is it possible to have a good relationship with your ex? I mean, it's so complicated for so many reasons, not least because it impinges on your partner your yeah, current, current partner yeah, yeah. and how are they going to feel about yeah. it and you write brilliantly about these uh, very awkward entertainingly awkward encounters between Rachel and uh, Quinn her current boyfriend and her ex-husband Luke and his new girlfriend uh, who tries way too hard to to be cool with Rachel and I mean I'm sure that there's other stuff that's going to unfold in that relationship that I haven't got to yet but um, is that something you have experience of as well and and, and have you come to any profound conclusions about whether you should have an ex in your life or is it just easier to say goodbye to them and, and that was just a part of your life that's over? I mean I think it's entirely down to yeah. both people well I mean both people, their current partners. Um, it depends on the kind of relationship. It depends on how you end it. You right, know, right. like if it's, if it's one of those gentle ones where you just ran out a road and thought, ah, sure, look at, we might as well just go our separate ways. I think it's probably a lot easier to stay in touch then. Um, but if it's one where like one person suddenly changed their mind and left the other person reeling, that's probably going to be an awful lot harder. But it's. I got a message from a woman in the last day or so who said that after 10 years, she got back with her ex-husband, you know, that she had read again, Rachel, and, you know, that they had been with other people then in, in the previous mm-hmm. 10. Yeah, I mean, anything is possible and then also nothing is possible. Yeah. You know, it's entirely up to... And it's, I think... It's how but, hurt but you are. But, but that's probably what you just said about the person getting back. That's probably terrifying for a lot of partners. Yeah. The possibility that that could happen. You know, yes. it's, it's like, well, you were with this person for such a long time and you invested so much emotional energy and real love yeah. in that relationship that it's probably still there somewhere. 
that's and not that's... necessarily true, though. No, it's you don't not. Reckon. No, I don't. I don't. I mean, like I've seen so many people where they've just they just outgrew each other, mm-hmm. you know. And sometimes they outgrew each other in a gentle way, and other times, like they one of them made their position clear in a very cruel way. But yeah, there are lots of people, and you're just oh my god, yeah. He used to be my boyfriend once. Well, uh, well, grand, and you feel nothing. Like not even a residual, kind of maybe a tiny bit of bit of a hope he's okay. Mm-hmm. And when you find out what happens with Rachel and Luke, it kind of makes more sense. It wasn't just an outgrowing. I leave it, you know, but no, I think there's no need to worry if you feel like. And also, I mean, Christ alive, we all only have today and we only have the now. And anything could happen, you know, instead of kind of worrying about mythological people from the past. You know, anything could happen. Let's just be grateful for for the love we have today, the people we have today, if that's of any use to anyone. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that feels like probably a good place to wrap up, but... um... That feels like one of uh, one of the happy endings that you seem embarrassed by. Like you feel as if um, to be take to be a more sort of authentic writer, then you've got to make things grim. You've got to reflect back the grimness in life because yeah. that's truth. <laughs> and uh, you can't have truth without bumming everybody out. Yeah. Which I really am conflicted by that idea. You know, it's like, okay, I get that. You don't want a sort of level of optimism that is ridiculous, yeah. Or or in total denial of of the truth of life and the unsatisfactory nature of getting old and dying with hopes unfulfilled and, you know, all these things that um, sometimes we see our parents going through at the end of their lives. You know, my dad was like that, sort of lying there fretting and feeling that things hadn't gone the way that he wanted them to, you know. So to give people something to hold on to and to focus on the possibility, the hope that things can be better, I I think that's fair enough. And I feel like, actually, isn't that kind of what art should be doing, especially as life is grim in so many obvious ways and the The older you get, the more obvious it is, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I suppose I think in every life we have moments where it all comes together, times where, like, the pain stops and something nice happens. And that's your happy ending there. But, like, nothing is finite, you know? That's going to change. Life will always keep changing until the very last moment. And, you know, there is no destination Oh, God almighty, that's very Instagrammy. Um, but, yeah, whenever you land on those moments in life, jump on them and think, oh, God, this is great, this is great, this is great. I know that things will change, but right now, I am happy, I'm grateful, and and I will take that. And it will sustain me because things are going to go to shit again because they always do. And then things will keep changing. Wait it out is kind of the piece of advice that I would ever give anybody. Wait it out. Things will get better again. For a while, you know. So, like, appreciate those bits because it won't be like that forever. Yeah. Weighted out is great advice, isn't it? And um, the way that Tony, your partner, sat you down when you said to him, I don't think this is during your depression. Yes. Well, I felt suicidal every day mm. for 18 months. And I had a plan 
because it comforted me because I knew if things got too unbearable, I could check out. I could just stop it. And uh, there was one day and it was just too, I, I couldn't. It was unendurable. So I, I, I went and I told him, you know, so long and thanks for all the fish. And uh, do you know that reference? Douglas Adams. Yes, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, because I love him and I wanted to thank him and I didn't want him, I didn't want it to be a shock. And he said, OK, but could we go and watch... We'll watch, we'll, we'll watch an episode of Come Dine With Me first. and uh, Which would, for some people... I know, would kind of tip you over the edge altogether. Yeah, and, uh, and in that 25 minutes, it was still painful, but I wasn't... It wasn't unendurable mm. any longer. Yeah, he got me to wait it out in a very casual, calm, gentle way. I waited it out, and I'm still here, you know? So, wait it out. It's a good place to end. Thank you. My God, this was fantastic. Wait, this is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area and spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Hey, welcome back, podcats. That was Marion Keys. I hope you enjoyed spending time in her company as much as I did, which was a lot. And I'm very grateful indeed to her and her team, publishers, her partner, Tony, who I met that day, um, for helping the meeting happen. It was really enjoyable. It, it lifted my spirits meeting her and talking to her. You can find links to various Marion-related bits and pieces in the description of this podcast, including links to the Alan Yentob Imagine documentary. Uh, there's an appearance on Desert Island Discs. What else in the links? Oh, yes, link to her podcast that she does with Tara Flynn and um, other odds and sods, as well as links to a couple of podcasts, other people's podcasts that I appeared on recently. And I will tell you about those in just a second. But how are you doing, podcats? I hope you're all right, despite the stresses and strains of the world. I've been uh, doing okay, recording a few conversations uh, that will be appearing in the next few weeks. 
including a few musical performances that I'm excited to share with you and forthcoming eps. I've been gearing up to do a few more live shows, including the first new bug shows for a couple of years. First one is later this month at the BFI South Bank. I've been recording some songs, actual songs. Well, they're sort of like songs that may one day actually see the light of day, although I don't know when. And I appeared on one or two podcasts. And though I can't vouch for the quality of my appearances, I can vouch for the quality of the podcasts in general. Long-time listeners will have heard me talk before about Stop Podcasting Yourself, in which Canadian comedians Dave Shumka and Graham Clark chat with other comedians and share amusing things that they've overheard or spotted out in the world. Overheards. Some of their guests appear regularly and are always great value. Particular favourites of mine that I've discovered through Stop Podcasting Yourself include Alicia Tobin, Dino Archie, he's got the best laugh, Peter Judaki, Charlie Demers, Sophie Buddle, and Brent Butt. All these people who have cheered me up on many occasions over the last few years. I already knew about American comedian Paul F. Tompkins. Uh, he appears on a lot of podcasts. He's always good value whenever he pops up. One episode that might not make any best episode lists is the one with British comedian Adam Buxton, who appeared on episode 724 in early 2022. I think Buxton was just a bit overwhelmed to be a guest on one of his favourite shows, um, recording remotely with Graham and Dave, who he had never met before in real life. So it was hard to be suddenly plunged in and difficult to relax. However, it was a great episode. My son vetted it, said, yeah, you were fine, Dad. You didn't disgrace yourself. He's a fan of the podcast, too. So uh, he said it was he said it was fine. So, yeah, check it out. Maybe not my episode first. I would go with some other people's. <laughs> Work your way towards my appearance. The other show that I was very excited to be invited to appear on was Peel Acres, in which John Peel's son, the broadcaster Tom Ravenscroft, takes guests around his father's legendary record collection in the family house down in Suffolk and uh, gets them to pick out a few discoveries and play them and talk about them and uh, that is a show that goes out on Radio 4 first and then appears as a podcast exclusive to BBC Sounds thereafter which means they're still able to have nice long clips of the music much longer than you would ordinarily hear on most podcasts, unless the podcasters are just, uh, you know, trying it on and hoping not to get busted by the algorithms. The thing is that it's so... I love podcasts about music. Song Exploder, I've mentioned before, and Soda Jerker on songwriting. And I really like it when they get to play clips, good long clips... And I've always felt that fans playing bits of music that they love on a podcast, especially if they're talking about it intelligently, can only be a good thing for the artist. 
And though I appreciate, I've written this down and I'm saying it, and though I appreciate that publishers and labels are trying to prevent artists being exploited by clamping down on the unpaid use of their music, I do think a lot of the time they just prevent people from discovering new stuff and appreciating it, which makes shows like Peel Acres all the more valuable, in my opinion. If you haven't heard Peel Acres before... I very much enjoyed the episodes. Well, they're all good. I mean, they really are all fantastic. You can, you just get to discover so much interesting stuff that you would never otherwise come across. Some quite well-known stuff, some extremely rare stuff. It's just a good random journey, you know. I liked the episode very much with London musician and polymath Nabiha Iqbal. And the episode with Fortet, a.k.a. Kieran Hebden. He's got like a next-level, off-the-scale, encyclopedic appreciation of rare music and uh, uh, vinyl rarities. So he was really in his element going through that collection. I had a great day recording my episode with Tom and his producers, Becca and Kevin back in March of this year. It was a very lovely day, not unlike this one, actually. A bit colder, maybe. And it was very exciting to get to see the legendary Peel record collection housed in a variety of rooms and barn spaces in and around the country cottage where Tom Ravenscroft's mother, Sheila, still lives. In fact, one of the best bits of the day as far as I was concerned, was sitting down to have lunch with Sheila and Tom and the crew. Amongst other things, we talked about John Peel and parenthood, compared notes, and um, Sheila was telling me about how emotional John used to get when the children would go away, when they went off to university and left home, and how difficult he found it. That certainly struck a chord. I also mentioned to Tom that I'd read a story about when John Peel was living in Dallas in the early 60s. And he saw John F. Kennedy passing in a motorcade during his presidential campaign in an open-top car. This was two, three years before he was assassinated in Dallas. Anyway, John Peel ran up to Kennedy shook his hand, had a short chat, like made a sort of meaningful connection. Kennedy said, oh, you're British. And uh, John had a camera with him, took his picture. And for a long while, I think that Peel thought the pictures had been lost or thrown out by an ex-wife in a fit of pique. But Tom when I mentioned this story, said, ah, no, they've been found. And he went and retrieved the tin full of transparencies that John Peel had taken when he lived in America, including these pictures of Kennedy. Excellent pictures. Like, when I first heard the story, I imagined that he'd snapped a picture on a brownie camera or something like that, you know, and... And they'd be all blurry and you wouldn't really be able to tell if it was Kennedy or not. But no, they're, they're kind of photojournalist quality 
pictures, really beautiful pictures of Kennedy in his motorcade. It's quite strange and even stranger that you know they were taken by a young John Peel. And then the other weird part of the story is that a few years later, on the 22nd of November 1963, when Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, John Peel made his way into town and blagged his way into the arraignment of Lee Harvey Oswald, who'd been accused of shooting Kennedy, saying that he was a reporter from the Liverpool Echo. Then, years later, watching a documentary about the assassination, Peel even spotted himself amongst the reporters in the TV footage from that day. And I've seen the frame grabs. I must say, I wouldn't have spotted him. But anyway, he swears that it was him, and he spotted himself quite easily. Anyway, I put a link to the whole Peel and Kennedy anecdote told in Peel's words in the description of the podcast. But yes, Peel Acres, it was good fun, even though, as I say, on the podcast, I did feel quite badly underqualified, especially compared to the other guests that Tom has had on the show. I just didn't know where to start. You know, you don't get... You just turn up and start recording. So it's not as if I spent an hour or two looking through and making considered decisions about what we should listen to. It was literally like, oh, let's look at this and pulling stuff out at random and saying, yeah, I'll just give that a go. So the music choices that you hear on the show are pretty much the first things that I pulled out, some better than others. And afterwards... I was also a little worried that I'd probably got quite a few things wrong when I was talking about some of the music that we were listening to and other bits and pieces. But overall, it was a good day and good to hang out with Tom, share our love of Pixies, stand up for Ween, the band, and generally take a break from the outside world in that crazy, overwhelming cathedral of music there. Okay, that's enough. That's enough. Thanks very much indeed to Seamus Murphy Mitchell for his production support. Podcast artwork is by Helen Green. Thanks to Acast and all who work there and help me keep the podcast running. And thanks most especially to you for coming back and listening. Until next time, we share the same out of space take great care and um well i'm gonna gift you a, a brief fleecy hug right now come here rosie come on let's head back i love you bye